Hello and welcome to episode 126 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi, and it's a wonderful pleasure to welcome my guest today, Elizabeth Schmidt, Betsy Schmidt. She is Professor Emeritus at Loyola Maryland University. She received her PhD from the University of Wisconsin and is the author of several books, including Foreign Intervention in Africa After the Cold War, Sovereignty, Responsibility, and the War on Terror, published by Ohio University Press in 2018, and its companion volume, Foreign Intervention in Africa from the Cold War to the War on Terror, published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. She's also the author of Cold War and Decolonization in Guinea, Ohio University Press, 2007, Mobilizing the Masses, Gender, Ethnicity, and Class in the Nationalist Movement in Guinea, Heinemann, 2005. And prior to that, Peasants, Traders, and Wives, Shona Women in the History of Zimbabwe, published by Heinemann, 1992. And her first publication was Decoding Corporate Camouflage, U.S. Business Support for Apartheid, published by the Institute for Policy Studies in 1980. Professor Schmidt has published articles in leading journals, including the American Historical Review and the Journal of African History, has received uh, Fulbright fellowships and also research grants from the American Council of Learned Societies Social Science Research Council. And among her many awards, she received the 2012 Bud Day Scholar Activist Award of the Association of Concerned Africa Scholars. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here today. Thank you, Peter, for inviting me. What sparked your initial interest in African affairs, and how did you become a professional historian of Africa? Okay, thank you. Well, let me go back to the 1960s. Um, I was raised in a family that was very concerned about social justice issues, and as we all know, that was a time of great social questioning and upheaval. My parents were quite involved in the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement, so I was raised with those kinds of conversations going on around the dinner table. And when I went to college, I was really, um, I'd been an environmental activist starting in 1970, but um, I, I had disengaged a little bit from some political activities. And towards the end of my undergraduate career um, as a history major, American history at Oberlin College, I took a course called Modern African Liberation Movements. And I did it more out of this sort of liberal guilt. I need to diversify my, my intellectual background, and, 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 the, and the course was on offer, and it looked interesting. And so reading about South Africa, and I'm well aware that there are huge differences between apartheid South Africa and the US South, but there was a lot of resonance. And so that sort of stuck with me. And the course was taught by someone who was not a specialist in Africa. He was, in fact, a historian of Japan, because in those days, at small liberal arts colleges, and maybe still today at some, um, there were people who taught the West, and there were people who taught the rest. And he was tasked with teaching the course on Africa. And so he had very good reading materials, but he stopped in 1960 with the banning of the African National Congress and the Pan-Africanist Congress and the crackdown, the state of emergency. And so here we were in the spring of 1976 saying, nothing is going on in South Africa. Isn't that too bad? Why aren't they resisting? 
Well, of course, a month after the end of the semester, Soweto exploded. And I was caught off guard, and I thought, oh, this is something I need to take interest in. Well, that didn't happen immediately. I graduated from college, went to Washington, D.C., worked for some NGOs, and in the process found myself doing work on human rights and U.S. foreign policy. It was during the Carter administration when that was really the, the thing to focus on. And I asked if I could do the case study on South Africa, among the many oppressive regimes with which we were doing business and giving economic and military support. So uh, in doing my research for a sort of country study on South Africa, I went up from Washington, D.C. to New York City, and I went to the American Committee on Africa to do research. And a very, very impressive man um, came into the room. I was in the entryway conference room for a few days. And after a few days, he said, what are you working on there? And so I told him. And he said, oh, well, when you're done, you need to send that to me. Well, this man was Prexy Nesbitt, who is a key figure in the Southern African Solidarity Anti-Apartheid Movement and many other progressive movements in the United States. Um, and a few months later, he called me from Washington, D.C., where he had started to work at the Institute for Policy Studies on the Africa Project. And one thing led to another, and he offered me a job. Um, and I was just to be a researcher, but he assigned me as my first task to um, do um, an unmasking of the Sullivan Principles, the Fair Employment Code that American companies were adopting in South Africa to justify their presence and to really camouflage the role they were playing in strategically supporting the apartheid economy. And on first glance, I looked at them and I thought, well, what's wrong with those? I mean, they look like basic equal employment opportunity principles, um, non-discrimination in the workplace, equal pay for equal work, job training and advancement. But I didn't want to admit to Prexy that I knew there was, you know, that I didn't see a problem. So I thought, well, if he thinks there is, there's got to be, and I've got to get to the bottom of it. Well, I had to do it quickly because he was going up to a big meeting in New York City, uh, the International Freedom Mobilization Committee's Summit Conference of Black Religious Leaders on Apartheid. And these were some of the big name ministers in the US civil rights movement who'd been involved with Martin Luther King and Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And the keynote speaker was Reverend Leon Sullivan, a major figure in the civil rights movement, minister of a huge Baptist church in Philadelphia, and the author of the Sullivan Principles. Now, Sullivan had written the principles because he'd been invited to join the board of directors of General Motors, which is one of the big American companies in South Africa, producing motor vehicles for the military and police and all these other things. And he tried to get them to pass a resolution um, for corporate withdrawal and sanctions, and of course they wouldn't. So the civil rights movement was saying to him, you know, Leon, you know, you either have to do something about this apartheid business in South Africa or get off the board of General Motors. They're using you. So he came up with the Sullivan principles. And Prexy knew, and he was giving a workshop at this, this conference, he knew that if there were not an alternative, that the ministers would probably endorse the principles of their brother minister. And so my task was to expose them to show how they were camouflage. 
And then Prexy had in his back pocket alternative resolutions that he had written calling for corporate withdrawal, sanctions, and a second resolution calling for um, the ministers to support the liberation struggle in South Africa as led by the African National Congress. So when Sullivan entered the room to give his talk, Prexy was at the door distributing my little analysis, saying to the participants in the conference, this is the Sullivan information, not divulging that it was a critique. And so as Prexy tells it, uh, the Reverend Wyatt T. Walker stood up and shook the paper at Leon Sullivan and said, Leon, what do you have to say about this? And Sullivan, I'm told, left the meeting without taking any questions. And then Prexy offered the alternative resolutions, which were passed by the summit conference um, black religious leaders. And of course, as a 23-year-old just out of college, I was thrilled. And I thought, this is what I have to do with my life. This is just so exciting. And you know, this sort of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed view of social change that you know this victory will be the ultimate one, and then we can sit back. Um, so I, I tried to find another job. We all got fired from the Institute for Policy Studies. They terminated the Africa Project. I, I think they felt that we were jeopardizing their funding base, which was liberal foundations, but with you know corporate money. And, um, and so Prexy went on to the World Council of Churches program to combat racism. And I looked for a job really to no avail. And um, I did expand the study. He got funding from the World Council of Churches to pay IPS to publish it. And that was the book you mentioned, Decoding Corporate Camouflage, U.S. Business Support for Apartheid. And so I finished writing that up, worked at another job, not on Africa, had the opportunity to go to South Africa, which I did undercover in 1981, and spent three months going you know, from rural areas to resettlement areas to the so-called homelands to occupied Namibia, uh, to Lesotho, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Tanzania to meet up with the ANC after my trip, and got into a lot of trouble with the security police, and then my book was banned in South Africa. Um, so I had realized by that time that um, while this is what I wanted to do with my life, I wasn't going to get very far with a bachelor's degree in American history, so I, I had decided to go to graduate school. And in those days, there was a lot of funding for language and area studies. It was the Cold War, and the government sort of thought, well, we need to have people who know about language and areas um, uh, in the global south. Um, although you didn't have to sign on the dotted line that you'd work for the government, they just felt that we needed to know more. So. I went off to the University of Wisconsin to get my union card, i.e. a PhD in African history, and had no intention of being an academic. Um, and by the time I finished, and I'd done my dissertation research in Zimbabwe, since I, which was new to majority rule, very Did exciting period. Did you in South Africa? Well, I wasn't going to go because I'd had a lot of problems with the security police and the U.S. Right. Secret Service. So I figured if they did let me in, which was a major if, that it would jeopardize anybody I spoke with. And I was also aware of the ANC called cultural boycott, and I wanted to respect that because uh, it was an academic and cultural boycott. So instead, I went to Zimbabwe um, You know, just a few years after majority rule. And it was a very exciting and optimistic time to be in Zimbabwe. Um, 
And when I finished my dissertation in 1987, you know, the Reagan administration was in office and there weren't a lot of jobs at progressive think tanks. And so I got a, a, a temporary job offer um, at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I thought, well, the Twin Cities seem nice. I'll go there. Um, and also, you know, people in the Southern African Solidarity Movement were teaching in the city. Alan Isaacman at the University of Minnesota work on Mozambique. And previous guest on the podcast. Okay, okay. Well, it was a wonderful group of students, terribly exciting. They were all very engaged in these issues, and I thought, oh, if this is academia, you know, I could do this. And so in the end, um, because it wasn't a permanent job, I, I came back to the East Coast. I got a job at Loyola University, Maryland, in Baltimore, um, and, and found that, you know, while I had to do a lot of things that were unrelated to this primary passion of mine, it gave me a lot of flexibility and room, if I organized my time well, to continue to do this kind of research um, that was sort of research for activism. So to, to have a, a more historically informed scholarly basis from which to operate for social justice and positive social change. One of the fascinating things about your professional trajectory and, and the books you've written, the research you've done, is how you've shifted your interests over time. You just told us a wonderful story about how you got into uh, African affairs and how South African Zimbabwe fit into this. You went from this focus on Southern Africa to West Africa. Uh, you, you went to Guinea. You think you were a Fulbright yes. in, at the university um, in Conakry, and you published two great books on decolonization in Guinea. What was it like for you to transition from being so engaged uh, in a region shaped by settler colonialism and industrial capitalism in the South to being a, a scholar of a non-settler colony in fr former French West Africa. I mean, I imagine the, the challenges were huge. I mean, just thinking of the language differences, uh, uh, different historiographical tradition, uh, what was that like? It was hard. And if I had known then what I know now, I don't know that I ever would have attempted it, but I'm glad I did. And I think the same thing with, you know, writing the book Decoding Corporate Camouflage. It didn't occur to me that I wasn't equipped or I wasn't qualified, but someone encouraged me, and so I did it. And so that's sort of the story of my life. I get in, I get in over my head, and then I think, okay, I've invested so much time and energy, I have to do it right, or it wasn't worth doing at all. So what happened there, it's that, you know, again, another story of, well, life intervenes. Mm. Um, you know, think, uh, I thought I was going in one direction, and something happened. So what happened to me is that I, at the University of Wisconsin, where I was getting my doctorate in African history, I met a man who was getting a doctorate in the political science department who happened to be from Guinea. And he, was, he had been um, in Secretary's government. He had been a, a judge in the Court of Appeals, and he wound up being the first... Uh, Fulbright student from Guinea to the United States, and and it came to do his PhD in 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 politics at the University of Wisconsin, and so you know when we did decide to get married, I thought. Um, you know, I went to visit his family, and um, I thought, well, you know, I speak French, and I actually, by chance, I'd spent a year of high school in a, a little village in the Massif Central of France, France, and I hadn't spoken English the whole year, so my French was pretty good, rusty, rusty but pretty That's good. That's helpful. It was helpful, <laughs> but certainly not sufficient, and again, I didn't really realize that, so... 
Speaking with him about, well, what hadn't been looked at in Guinea, he said, oh, you know, the women played an enormous role in the uh, French West African general strike in, in 1953, and also the French West African railway strike that preceded that in 1947, 1948. And, and you know, without the famously, women... Famously covered by Simbén Ousmane. And, yes, and yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And so, but not in Guinea per se. Mm -hmm. and, and so... Um, yeah, so God's Bits of Woods, the, the novel written by Sembeni Usman, well, you know, influenced me. I read that. Um, and so I thought, this is what I'll do. I'll, I'll try to get a, a Fulbright and come here, and that can support us. He had to do a two-year home residency because of his visa status, uh, you know, once he got his doctorate. So I thought, I'll go with him, and I'll do this research, and it'll be real quick, and then I'll be back in southern Africa. And so I went to the U.S. Embassy. I said, you know, I'd like to apply for a Fulbright, but I can't find the Fulbright program anywhere listing Guinea. And the public affairs officer said, well, we don't have a Fulbright program in Guinea. And I said, really, why not? And she said, well, the conditions here are so difficult, we didn't think that any American academics would be willing to come and live here. And I said, well, I would like to do it. And she said, well, come back in a couple days. I'll call Washington. So in those days, you could call Washington, and she talked to some people, and she said, well, they said, come up with a project. If it makes it through the academic hurdles, we think maybe we can scrounge up some money for you to support a Fulbright. And that started the Fulbright program in Guinea. So I went, again, thinking this is just a little side project. Well, that's when I discovered that when the French left precipitously in 1958, when Guinea voted for independence, they burned the archives, among any other damaging that, things. That's, that's a, a legendary moment yes. in African history, the 1958 referendum and the French reaction right. to this massive, what, 94% of uh, Guinea voted uh, to not remain part of the... Right. French community, right? That's right. And they destroyed the infrastructure yeah. in pulling out. Yeah, they, they destroyed the blueprints of the sewer system and you know the factories, they cracked the state dishes, they pulled the telephones out of the walls, they they you know stopped shipments of medicine and on and on and on, and they burned the archives. And so um, the archives that remained were, you know, scattershot and very, you know, badly preserved because that requires a lot of money, and Guinea had very little money. They were really isolated from the West after that, and um, and so the archives were down by the ocean at that point. There was no climate control, so there were just rooms floor to ceiling of moldy, insect-eaten documents. And so, of course, I found nothing about the general strike or women or anything. And so um, uh, while I was supposed to be teaching at the university, it was on strike most of the year, so I had all this time to do research. And my husband couldn't find a job because there was a military government at that point um, after Secretary's death. There was a military coup and the military government, and he refused to pay the bribes requisite for getting a job, and so he was unemployed. And so I said, hey, how about this? Let's do this together. And he was enormously helpful in uh, giving me an entree into Guinean society, the people who'd been involved in the nationalist movement, women who worked with women's self-help projects after independence, and just finding names of people I might interview. And so that's what I did. Um, 
And it took months, but I got some really, really wonderful interviews. And because he was unemployed, he was my so-called research assistant interpreter. Because while I speak French, as you suggested, I've moved from you know Shona speaking Zimbabwe. Well, first Kosa speaking South Africa to Shona speaking Zimbabwe, and now um, now to Guinea. And so he was my interpreter for anything that was in Susu or Malinke or Pular or um, uh, Pele or Loma. Um, in fact, the only language he, he didn't speak was, I think, Kisi um, uh, of the main languages in Guinea. And the, the, the one problem was that there was a lot of things that women wouldn't talk about in the presence of a man. And I knew that from my research mm -hmm. in Zimbabwe, that that there are definitely spheres where women, that's their private stuff, and they're not gonna talk to men about it. But all things considered, I mean, it seemed to be you know the way to go. Plus, I had hoped to hire one of my female history students, but not only was the university on strike, but the military had said, secretaries destroyed the family. Um, look at all these women in university. So when my, my husband was in university in the mid-1970s, half of the engineering students, half of the medical students were women. When I got there in 1990-91, there were no women even in my history classes in third and fourth years. So that was not going to be a place where I'd find a research assistant. So we went around knocking on doors and interviewing people, and it was just absolutely fabulous. And then... Um, um, in the archives, what I did find was a, a, a bunch of files about rural resistance to the colonial chiefs who were collecting the taxes and imposing crop requisitions and military conscription and labor, labor taxes and those sorts of things. And so I began to think about expanding my study from the, the women's involvement in the labor movement too. Maybe I should look at sort of grassroots mobilization in the last years of French colonialism against the French. And then I went to Senegal, and that was, that was key. I couldn't have done either of the books without that. So um, Senegal, of course, was the headquarters of French West Africa, and that meant that the governors of all the French West African territories sent reports on in carbon copy to Senegal. And so while the French had burned the Guinean archives, there were tiers of information that had wound up in the Senegalese National Archives. And so there I found lots of information about the French West African Railway Strike, the General Strike, um, the, the role of returned World War II veterans in protesting French colonialism, um, not still not much about the market women and, and their resistance, but uh, all these other aspects, the intellectuals, the school teachers who were major in setting up mm. um, the, the, you know, the political party that ultimately led Guinea to independence. And so I began to imagine a, a quite different project, which would be a grassroots history of the nationalist movement. And I should say that I'd moved from the decoding corporate camouflage sort of diplomatic history to social history when I was in grad school. So my book on Zimbabwe was really social history. And so this was another book looking at the lives of ordinary people. And it, you know, it got unwieldy. I wanted to, you know, do the do the total history where I was gonna have the local history but showing how that interacted with international, you know, Cold War, et cetera. And so the publisher said, no, you know, you know, this is without focus, we're interested in this, this, and this, but not that, that, and that. And after getting very depressed about the situation, I thought, huh, 
I wonder if I have two books here. And so I wound up in um, a relatively short period of time with two books, The Mobilizing the Masses, and then the other was Cold War and Decolonization in Guinea, which was really a grassroots political history of the nationalist movement and the ultimate vote for no to the French Constitution and for immediate independence. And looking at how the grassroots political actors actually pushed Secretary and the party to that more radical stance. Right, which, which was a very insightful reading of the situation, because from the outside, Secouture was usually given all the credit That's right. for he, this defiant yes. act of the Guinean nation. He certainly was, yes. And, and also just that he became a dictator later, therefore he must have had total control over this movement, and they just followed like sheep, you know, in his, you know, according to the path that he presented, and I found that wasn't at all the case, and there was a lot of resistance and pushback, and pushed him beyond a more neutral middle ground where he, he really was up through much of the summer of 1958, and the referendum was in September 1958. So um, and, and, and the main constituents uh, sort of pushing for that more uh, radical position were, as you indicated, teachers, for yeah. example, uh, but also at the grassroots, uh, women and um, people who were upset with the chiefs. Yes, you mentioned, yes, and yes. the sort of exploitative uh, nature of that yes. relationship. Yeah, um, which is because I've always wondered, you know, this this Guinea. Before I read your work, you know, why did Guinea take yeah. uh, this momentous decision? And you also pointed out, I think, in another, maybe it was in the Cold War and Decolonization book, why the other territories right. uh, did not go yeah. that route, and pointed out that actually some were pretty close to yes. going for the no vote. Niger was one yes. of them, and I think Senegal as well. Yes, uh, it was much closer to, as they moved towards the. The date of September fifty-eight um, than than previously thought. Yeah. So it's a very subtle and nuanced picture, but certainly your portrayal of of the Guinean movement is uh, is really uh, wonderful. And anyone who's interested in in this process um, has to come to you for for these insights. Uh, uh, thank you. May I say one more thing about that? Yes, and that absolutely. is that I said these two books came out in close succession. Two books on Guinea, but. There was a 12-year hiatus between my book on Zimbabwe and my first book on Guinea. And that goes back to the question you'd originally asked, you know, you know, what was the nature of the transition? What did it feel like? It was pretty horrible. I felt like an imposter. I wasn't in danger of losing my job. I had tenure. I was at a small liberal arts college. Um, anything I did post-tenure was great as far as they were concerned. But in my own being, I felt like I'm not producing anything. And you know, what am I doing going to professional meetings? I don't really have anything to say, which is, again, I think a gender thing partly. But I also had a very young child, and I had to be department chair, and all these other things were happening. And I just kept plugging away at it, you know, that um, once he got old enough to you know, be in summer camp. I would go home and sit by a computer while he was in summer camp, and I'd work at the manuscript, and I had sabbaticals. Um, but I had the luxury, because I wasn't at a high-pressure research institution, to um, take the time that it needed to get it right, as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I really valued that about my, my work at Loyola, that they really let me do that. And um, 
Um, otherwise, it would have been a very foolish thing to do. I mean, at a place where I might have lost my job, um, you know. But but it was enormously insightful for me as a historian of Africa to have these other perspectives, and for teaching at a liberal arts college where I have to teach the continent. We don't have a specialist in East Africa, one in Central Africa, Southern Africa, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So um, you know, to be able to tell stories, you know, to illustrate points that I wanted to make to the students um, from different parts of the continent was really nice. Well, I try to tell my colleagues in other disciplines too that history takes time, uh, yes. and we are a book-based discipline, and all they're interested in is impact factors. <laughs> Shifting to your most recent research, your latest books examine foreign interventions in Africa. And I highly recommend them both to specialists and non-specialists alike. I, I really enjoy your ability to take quite complex events and explain them in lucid synthesis. I think that's uh, something that's uh, increasingly rare <laughs> in academia as we become hyper-specialized and get more and more esoteric, I feel. So I use both books uh, liberally for things like lecture preparation. Well, and, thank you. And also read the, the bibliographies, which were, are incredibly rich, and they allow me to do deep dives into particular topics or regions. Um, and you cover, you know, Egypt, Algeria, uh, DRC, um, Angola, Mozambique, Cape Verde, Guinea-Bissau, Southern Africa, Somalia, the Horn, you know, Cameroon, Niger, Gabon, Central African Republic, Chad, Liberia, Sudan. Wow. Um, and each conflict has its own dynamics, obviously, and, and, and aftermaths. Um, but you also show how, especially during the Cold War in the first book, Britain, France, Portugal, Belgium in particular, and the U.S., of course, uh, intervened at various points in various places to shape first the process of decolonization once it became clear that uh, African people were not going to be uh, unfree for much longer. Uh, but then later, particularly in the 80s and early 90s, to impose sort of neoliberal austerity programs um, on African nations, you show that this history has left uh, a legacy of conflict, uh, conflicts over power, over resources. But you don't um, leave Africans sort of out of the picture by emphasizing the role of these external powers. You don't present Africans as passive victims. Um, you show how there were plenty of unscrupulous African elites in particular who pursued their own agendas, their own interests, and often at the expense of ordinary people. So how did you go about writing African agency into this kind of book? Thank you. Um, that is a very good question, and um, one that I, um, you know, I feel a little bit ashamed about the answer. In in that African agency is not nearly as involved as I would like it to be, but I I write like three chapters laying out, especially this most recent book about foreign intervention after the Cold War. Um, I, I lay out why I chose to focus on foreign political and military intervention, why other th factors are still extremely important in understanding the conflicts in Africa, like the inter economic intervention that you mentioned. Um, another factor would be climate change, the impact of climate change, environmental destruction, both of which are largely due to the actions of the global north, but the impact is felt in the global south. Um, I do talk about the fact that one can't understand and certainly one can't resolve these conflicts without the intense involvement of 
Africans at the grassroots, the civil society organizations, women's organizations, youth organizations, uh, hum human rights organizations, et cetera, um, and how they are not as present in the picture in these books as they deserve to be, but the books are already hundreds and hundreds of pages long in, in the case of the more recent one, um, and, and they need to have a certain focus, and so, um, I try to pay tribute to the fact that this is important and someone should look into that and, and write books about this and present it. But it's not integrated into these particular books. And you mentioned the bibliography. At the end of each chapter of the case studies, I have suggested reading sections that are not just bibliographies, but sort of mini essays that, you know, pointing readers to where they should go if they're interested in this aspect of the subject matter of the chapter. Um, and so I do point out some, some things that look at grassroots actions, but um, one of the weaknesses of the solutions, the peace accords that are often signed and, and imposed often top-down by outsiders and elites is that they don't include uh, people at the grassroots who are the ones who have the grievances that are at the root of the conflicts and often um, have had no way to address their, uh, their neglect or abuse or lack of opportunity because those ways have been closed off to them by repressive governments supported by outsiders and they eventually resort to some kind of armed um, unrest un and, and conflict, and that they need to be sitting at the table and not just to sign the accord and force it on their people at the end, but to talk about the grievances, to talk about the solutions that will work, et cetera. So I do talk about those kinds of things, but I don't give the kind of detail about the, those actions on the ground in the case studies. Um, and I guess that is one of the drawbacks of a synthesis, that if you're gonna do case studies that cover the continent, you have to have a focus and make choices, but explain the choices so that mm -hmm. readers know what they're getting into and what they're not gonna find. And there's a remarkable continuity between uh, the Cambridge book, uh, which focuses on the period, you know, roughly from the end of World War II to, the, uh, to September 11th, and the second book, which really focuses on um, sort of from the 1990s to the present. Uh, but you do throw out in this second book, the most recent book, the um, new factors, that is the, the passing of the responsibility to protect uh, by the UN Security Council, which can authorize intervention if a member state uh, fails to protect citizens or is perceived to be failing to protect right. citizens from atrocities and human rights violations, and then, of course, the U.S.-led war on terror. And you point out, for example, that, you know, sort of U.S. anti-communism of the, of the Cold War era has kind of morphed uh, into sort of, you know, anti-Islamist terrorist um, uh, kind of actions and, and justifications. Um, so the war in Libya, for instance, you have a great chapter on the Arab Spring. You, you talk about the war in Libya, and this was the first time that RTP, as far as I know, was used to authorize military action, and yet, I think most observers who are objective will recognize that you had uh, both the United States under the Obama administration, but also France, exerting enormous pressure, of course, to use this opportunity, shall we say, to finally 
produce re regime change and get rid of Gaddafi, despite the fact that there had been a warming of the relationship just prior to this as Gaddafi was um, assisting, shall we say, or cooperating to some extent with the US in anti-Al-Qaeda uh, activities. Um, so critics have argued that RTP, as the Libyan case seems to suggest, essentially functions as a cover for Western interests, uh, particularly in Africa, including regime change. Bagbo in Ivory Coast mm -hmm. might be another example. Do you agree with that assessment? I do agree that it can be used in that way. I, I don't agree that it is always or that it has to be. Uh, maybe it has to be. It's not inevitable. It is not inevitable. That is the word, yeah. Um, and that's true with so many things. I mean, uh, people say, well, you know, maybe we should just pick up and leave and, you know, let Africans resolve their own problems, the whole idea of African solutions for African problems. Well, that would be all well and good if we hadn't caused the problems in the first place. And I'm saying we quite broadly. But, you know, you don't, you don't mess up everything and then say, oh, that's a, that's a deal for Africans to, to figure out. Um, um, and so I would say the same thing about, um, you know, the funding of... Uh, endeavors, yes, uh, if the EU or the UN, dominated by the West, you know, the Security Council, funds an endeavor, certainly that does give room for those powerful nations to uh, impose their their desires and, and solutions or supposed solutions that promote their interests. And the similar thing could be said about our, R2P. But, um, but it doesn't have to be that way, and I think what we have to be aware of is the dangers that that um, can be involved, and not to assume that we've got this great resolution and it's going to be used e even-handedly and for all all conflicts that um, um, that would require it. But it it will be used selectively unless people are called out, and I know that. Um, um, it, it, certainly, with with uh, Rwanda, it was um, um, it was. Well, I'm sorry, it was the aftermath of Rwanda that that generated the the notion. But um, when France was involved in Rwanda, they were supporting the Hutu power government. Uh, when they got involved in in Cote d'Ivoire, they were they were promoting something quite el different, but now using R2P as a justification. As you said, regime change was the goal there, and regime change was really the goal of the United States and France in Libya. Um, a lot of countries had realized that the writing was on the wall in Libya, and that even though Gaddafi was now cooperating with the US in its so-called war on terror, and uh, with the Europeans in blocking the, the flow of migrants uh, from mm. sub-Saharan Africa to, to Europe seeking refuge. Um, uh, he was getting billions of dollars in aid and trade to, to, to keep them um, on, on Libyan shores and in concentration camps and putting them to work in low-wage, if not slave, labor. Um, um, they were realizing that the unrest in Libya was going to take him down at some point, and they wanted to get on the winning side. And so they were eager to negotiate with the rebels, and, and the rebels were calling for this no-fly zone that would, um, that would hamper the Libyan military and uh, allow the advance of the rebels. But it was presented as Gaddafi is killing innocent civilians, which he was. Um, but people weren't looking to the future. If you take out a dictator where 
he has already destroyed all civil society institutions, anything that will threaten his regime. There will be a power vacuum, and who is likely to fill it? Well, these, these city-based militias or the so-called tribal-based militias, um, you know, the, the old regime remnants who have survived, and sure enough, that's what happened. All hell broke loose, and Libya's been in the midst of a civil war since the Arab Spring, and the unguarded arsenals um, 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 provided to, to Gaddafi um, were taken all over the, the Western Sahel and into um, uh, other parts of the, uh, the continent and into the Middle East. And that's because no money was allocated for guarding the arsenals and you know trying to stop the flow of fighters who were leaving the country. And in the case of Mali and Niger, Tuareg fighters who'd been trained as crack desert troops by Qaddafi went home and joined secessionist movements in the north where um, there had been a huge amount of neglect and abuse and conflicts with the southern-based government. And American-trained Tuaregs in the Malian army quit the army and joined the secessionist movement. And the US-trained army captain in the Malian army, who wasn't a Tuareg, staged a military coup. And Mali has been in turmoil ever since, and it's crossed borders into Niger and Cameroon and Burkina Faso. And you know, talk about protecting civilian lives. Well, far, far, far more civilians have died uh, since Gaddafi than, than Gaddafi was, was killing. And of course, we can say the same about the 2003 invasion of Iraq. That yeah, Saddam Hussein was a dictator, but what comes next? And you know, have we done anything to in help facilitate civil society organizations mm -hmm. to 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 take control so that warlords don't? And to say nothing about Donald Rumsfeld shaking Saddam Hussein's hand during the Iraq-Iran conflict yeah. when the United yeah. States was actively backing. Uh, Hussein while he was gassing the Kurds. Mm -hmm. So that actually brings up something very interesting that you reflect on in the final chapters and the epilogue also of the uh, book Foreign Intervention in Africa after the Cold War. And that is the continuity in US foreign policy in Africa since uh, the early 1990s that crosses across party lines, whether it's George W. Bush or Barack Obama or even uh, Donald Trump. There seems to be a common thread running through this foreign policy. And um, one of them is, I think, clearly the militarization of foreign policy. I mean, we have Susan Rice and Samantha Power, you know, out on the lecture circuit on TV now advertising their books. They were active supporters yeah. of the intervention in Libya um, when the State Department was, of course, run by Hillary Clinton. Um, so, you know, those are liberal voices uh, actively advocating for the kind mm -hmm. of disastrous mm -hmm. interventions that, that your work outlines. So um, what do you think... Um, are the lessons mm -hmm. uh, that uh, we can draw from uh, U.S. foreign policy in Africa from the past few years? What what would you like to see change? Well, I think the most important thing, and and I'm glad you man mentioned Susan Rice and Samantha Power and Hillary Clinton because they were absolutely key in tipping the balance within the Obama administration towards intervention in Libya, uh, military intervention, 
And Obama was really on the fence about it. And there were other very high-level officials who absolutely opposed it, including much of the military establishment, because they foresaw what would happen. And Samantha Power, of course, her claim to fame was the book she wrote about the Balkans uh, and about the way in which outsiders have allowed all these genocides to go America and the Age of Genocide. Yes, yeah. Which won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, um, and Susan Rice, um, maybe fewer people know about this, but was um, a, a voice on the National Security Council during the Rwanda genocide mm -hmm. saying, we can't call it a genocide or we'll have to do something, and that's politically not palatable right before an election, so we won't call it a genocide. And afterwards felt very contrite about that, and as a result, essentially wrote a blank check to uh, Paul Kagame, who's the president of Rwanda now, who had led the rebels, uh, who, yes, helped to stop the genocide, but has become quite repressive um, in other ways and quite responsible for the plunder of the Congo and, and the conflicts that now have resulted in more than five, five million deaths uh, since the late 1990s. Again, it's not just Rwanda that's done this, but, sure. but Kagame is very involved in that, and Rwanda as a, a role model now in Africa, as it's often promoted, um, you know, developed itself economically based on wealth studied, uh, stolen from the Congo. So Susan Rice, you know, has her own kind of uh, issues. I think Hillary Clinton, um, you know, wanted to show she wasn't soft, right, as a, as a woman, and I'm sure has her own, you know, belief systems as well, but I think a woman in that position wants to show that she's not afraid of military action. Um, and so here were these three women promoting what's now referred to as the liberal interventionist or humanitarian interventionist route that was more militaristic even than Obama, and he, he went over to their side. Um, um, and I think, again, one of the failings is that so many people in the U.S. foreign policy establishment don't know enough about the parts of the world where they intervene. They don't, they don't know the basic history and the basic kind of demography and relations between different groups and what might well happen if you take out the dictator without any other um, institutions to re in place to, to uh, support. Um, and so one of the reasons I wrote these books is the hope that somebody in the, you know, in the foreign policy establishment, somebody in the media, not just students and people at the universities, will take note of these things and um, you know, read not just my book, which is, as you've said, a synthesis, but pl plow into those suggested reading sections at the end and, and know these things before playing with people's lives, essentially. So m one, one takeaway I have in terms of the militarization of, U of U.S. foreign policy, especially in Africa, is that these are problems that are deeply rooted, and they are really structural inequalities in all of these countries that um, are the true source of grievance, the poverty, the underdevelopment, the lack of um, uh, opportunity, and the devastating impact of climate change and environmental destruction, which again, as I've said, is really due to actions primarily in the global north that now the ramifications are happening in Africa. So I do talk in the case studies about which conflicts are over land and water mm -hmm. or fished out oceans or pollution of 
the delta by oil industries that have left people destitute and without hope for the future, and how they are taking up arms when they have no other means, and how Al-Qaeda and Islamic State have taken advantage of this unrest to insinuate themselves, but didn't start it, and certainly didn't create the problems. This is not a, a religiously motivated um, uh, series of conflicts for the most part. Um, and so um, um, failing to see the true root of the problem is key. And secondly, um, the solutions aren't military. If those are the problems, then you can't just send in you know, well-trained troops with the most sophisticated uh, technology uh, to resolve it. They, they can only be resolved um, by addressing the issues, and, and the issues can only be resolved effectively if civil society is involved from the beginning to the end, the women, the youth, the elders, the human rights organizations, uh, pro-democracy, political parties, et cetera, and they won't be quick, and I think that's another fall you know, failing in our foreign policy is we want something that's done by election day. Um, uh, we want you know, something to show, and these are problems that are gonna take, take generations. And um, and if people are frustrated by that, you know, they need to study history and look at the long arc of history and how long it takes for fundamental social change and how there's a step forward or two steps forward and then there are, there's a backlash, an inevitable backlash. And you, you get pushed back, but then you move forward again. And when people lose heart now and say, oh, it's never been so, so bad in this country, I say, well, yes, it has. And there are some things that have been a whole lot worse, and we can't give up and, and stop struggling to make a better place. Um, um, but you know, be cognizant of the, you know, the victories and, and that there will be a pushback and to be prepared for that and, um, and think, okay, what will we do after the pushback? And, and where will the new areas be where we need to focus our attention? And don't just try the old strategies that used to work. Uh, uh, on the issues that used to be the dominant ones. Um, and so, um, you know, I guess my conclusion is that, you know, it's these underlying grievances that have to be addressed, and it's the voices of the local people, the agency of the local people that has to be front and center, rather than the interests of elites within the countries, the African countries, or outsiders, whether they be outside the continent or neighboring countries that have an interest in um, um, a solution one way or another that may be beneficial to them, but won't be beneficial to the local people. Well, I think on that uh, sobering, pragmatic, but also hopeful note, we'll bring our conversation to a close. Uh, thank you, Betsy Schmidt, for uh, speaking with Africa Past and Present. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I was very pleased to have it. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical support is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. You can stream and download all episodes on our website, afropod.aodl.org. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts. To get in touch, send email to alegi, A-L-E-G-I, at msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>